Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Imperfect, where we discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposefully. This week, my guest is Brian Morgan. Brian is a professor as well as the president of his company, Think Deeply, Write Clearly. For myself, what kind of really interested Brian with me is the fact that in order to write clearly, you need to think deeply. And that think deeply piece really caught my eye. And so on our initial call, he was a very good question asker. And I kind of wanted to have this idea of having him on to start asking me, me questions and allow me to think deeply and deeper into my podcast, who I am. And so that's kind of what the next hour that you'll hear is about. We go into things like re- regrets, identity, as well as some other topics of conversation that I think really meant a lot to me and I think will kind of reflect with you and, and help you ask yourself questions about where you are today. So that's the episode and I really look forward to uh, hearing your thoughts. Let's get into it now. So Brian, thank you so much for being here. The first question I always ask my guests is if you were to have anyone over for dinner, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you cook for them? Oh, wow. Um, Okay. Philip Roth, unfortunately now dead until within the last year, I think alive. Guy who probably should have won the Nobel Prize for literature. But um, what, what I love about Philip Roth is completely unafraid to be exactly who he was and think exactly how he thought and share exactly how he thought and came under a tremendous amount of scrutiny, but was also brilliant. And, you know, scrutiny because he was a male who liked sex and wrote about sex and things. And of course, came, came under a tremendous amount of, of scrutiny for that. And then would also freely admit that that was one of the major drivers, driving factors of his life and not run from it and not just fully admit it. I, I think just an, an incredibly brilliant writer understood every aspect of it, understood the structure of it, understood the sentence of it. Under, like there are very few people who command it the way he commanded it, kind of the Babe Ruth of of writing to me. And uh, so, so eminently capable and always thinking and always thinking at a deep, there was always, there was always a, another level of the thing in it, but probably everything he has written, uh, I would need to read again. Um, well, his father was a butcher. So I think, I think we'd do some sort of meat uh, top, top of my head, but um but definitely him. If it was you, I'm interested. If it was you, who would you who would you have? Oh darn! I have never had this question flipped around on me. Man, I guess there's a lot of people, but um, I'd probably pick Nelson Mandela. I've read a couple books on the apartheid. I've actually been to South Africa. I've been to the apartheid museum. I've read his uh, memoir, A Long Walk to Freedom, and I just think. Going from where he was as a young man to where he, well, going from where he was yes, as a young man to where he was as a, you know, a post-prison, it was, it's a, just a fantastic journey of a, of a man finding themselves and becoming themselves and living it out and, and understanding that, you know, he lacked a lot of what you would say wisdom when he was younger, but still had a lot of wisdom. 
and then just learning how to hold back the or learning how to communicate his wisdom or control it and make it more powerful to him as an individual, he became in control of the exact strength that he was. And I think that a lot of young men have both that. I think a lot of young men have wisdom, but they don't learn how to control the foolishness of that wisdom. And if we learned how to harness that and use it for good, then I'd say we'd be in a much better place and we'd lose a lot of young men at an early age. But I think when you're young and wild and free, sometimes you can kind of lose the the part where you actually, you know, self-digest and, and self-reflect enough that you realize that you can still have fun and, and use your wisdom to an advantage. So I, I think I'd choose Nelson Mandela for that reason. So what does that mean to you to they lose themselves. I think I'm, I'm, I hope, I hope I'm mirroring correctly, but they, they lose themselves in the wisdom or they, or they don't know how to use the wisdom. What does that mean to you? Well, I guess I would just say that uh, everyone has a conscience and I think your conscience is typically wise in and of itself. I would say that there's a wisdom there, like a gut instinct is, is wisdom. But, you know, as a young man, I would say that I haven't gone with my gut a lot of times or, you know, you overcompromise with your gut and you kind of allow yourself to rationalize foolish decisions and make it appear logical and wise. And I would say I've done that a lot, but knowing in my heart that what I've done is not actually what I wanted to do. It wasn't the wise choice. It was the foolish choice, but we really learn. I think even this in the society, I've read a book called uh, The Ego Boom, and it's all about how we we live in a very individualized, self-focused society. And I think what coronavirus and the whole COVID situation has done is is really kind of shine a light on that. If you're going out still or if you're participating in, in those those moments where you're not thinking of other people, you're just thinking about your own satisfaction. I think it's really exposed that or, you know, allowed allowed a lot of people to reflect on it. But I just say in my life, I haven't always I've always known what the right choice is, but I don't make it. And I think it's, you know, part of my learning process to make a foolish decision. But really, I've always hated when people use that as a, you know, I'm young, I have to make, now's the time to make mistakes. Like, yes, now's the time to make mistakes, but make mistakes that were accidents. Don't make mistakes on purpose because you think this is a learning opportunity, if that makes any sense. Right. But do you think that goes away when you get older? Because I know, I know plenty of people who are 40 who know that they shouldn't be eating pizza. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, so so it's it's interesting because I think I think what you're what you're you're talking about is we sort of iterate into better lives and part of that is making mistakes. One of the things that happens in our in our culture is that we don't often pay a very big price for not making the right choice because we don't know the road not traveled. And so one of my clients talks a lot about, if you wanna know what your future looks like, what are you doing right now? And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that because essentially what he says is if you're a person who works out every day, then your future is fit. If you're a person who doesn't, then your future's not fit. But it's, it, there's a very one-to-one -one reaction to that. But short of diabetes, death for young people, probably sexually transmitted diseases or things that short, short of some immediate reaction to immediate behavior, 
it's tough to know about the life we didn't live because we're living the one that we are. And so it's very hard, therefore, to iterate from mistakes. In fact, it's very easy to justify mistakes. I didn't really think that that through. And look, nothing very serious happened. It's true, except we also didn't reap the benefits from making a better mistake or making a better choice. And and I think we probably missed it. So it's a, it's a it's an it's, I'm interested in how you have framed that because I think it's it's one of the sort of conundrums of of how we process information and how we make decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I've always told people, and I've always thought this from a young age, is that you know if I'm driving somewhere and I choose to turn right instead of left, the whole rest of my life will be completely different. And that's something I fundamentally believe is that every minuscule choice or a choice that we think is minuscule is like, I could pick up my pen right now and twirl it around. Now that just changed the conversation that you and I have. It's something so minuscule, but it's something that I did that can change the rest of my life. And I think a lot of the times it's really hard to grasp that. I've always been able to understand it, but never really, it's hard to imagine what you would picture or what you can picture beyond what you just did. And you can, you can be like, oh, I turned right instead of left, but that doesn't, you're never going to know what the outcome would have been if you had done otherwise for any choice that you ever make. And so I, under, like, I totally agree with what you just said there is that that conundrum that what we are or where we are is what we are living and every choice we've made is where we are. So you can justify your mistakes in a way that sometimes can be a bit ridiculous to me. You know, you, you go to university, you see the culture that that people say, you know, it's a time of mistakes. And I did my best to kind of hide from those, a lot of those mistakes, because I just knew they were wrong. But at the same time, I look back now and I kind of wish I partook in a little bit more of that reckless behavior at times, because not really because I, I'm jealous of anything that happened. I'm, I'm very proud of where I am. But there's just a part of me that's just like, I kind of wish maybe I was a bit more reckless, but it's like a really foolish of me. I like, I don't like that. I think that, but I just wish it was, and I don't really know where to go from there, but I want you to explain, you know, before we go any further, exactly what it is that you do, because I think that will kind of give a lot of context to the questions that you're asking and why you chose Philip Roth as your dream guest. So my, um, my business is, is a company called think deeply, write clearly. I do corporate trainings where I help organizations improve their writing. And this, this jumped off of my history in the planning and engineering space. Um, I, I, I was the managing editor of New York City's premier planning and environmental firm for 16 years. We created the documents that got almost every major project in New York City built or rebuilt, including the World Trade Center, including Grand Central Station. And so we knew that every document we were producing had billions of dollars on the other side of it. And I think very few people approach their writing with billions of dollars on the other side of it. And we would, we would lose millions of dollars in hours fixing documents so that these things could be written well enough that people would spend the money they needed to spend in order to have the projects go forward. So it was a very significant problem, and I and I learned a system, or I t- I taught a system to improve the writing inside the organization, and that led to: Can you help my writing? Period. Can you help my writing in the market? Can we help my writing and thought leadership? And so that's that's how we met because you came across one of my clients, and we, we got introduced by him. Uh, so I help him with some with some of his marketing and his thought leadership. 
But uh, so I run a consultancy that helps people with their writing. I mean, that's the short version of it. And that's either on a very corporate side or sometimes on a marketing side. Yeah. And I think that will give a little bit more context to what we're going to be talking about on this podcast, because when we had our touch-based phone call, it was a lot of questions about getting me to think deeply and more clearly about why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so I think that's what Brian's going to be kind of running through a bit here as well as he's very much a question master. I, I learned that in my previous phone call with him. I'm going to try to take, I've been trying to take some skills from him about, you know, how to even ask questions on the podcast. So now we can dive back into the previous topic about university and, and mistakes and failure, but I just wanted to set that up so everyone understands exactly what Brian is, is a master at. If I can opine for a second, yeah. Luke, if you don't mind, what we forget is and, and I think this is the biggest mistake we make in college, speaking of college. Uh, so I teach in colleges, right? So, so I mean, I try not to make this mistake, but, but people do, right? Every day this happens inside of the college. We teach people that there is, that in order to be a strong writer, you need to say forcefully what you believe. And there, that is a certain type of writing, but it, but it can also, the other word for that writing is uh, advocacy. So you're advocating for a position in things. But in the real world, that's not the purpose of writing. So if we, if we go back, you know, I, I love this example because it makes it so clear to me. If you took a, a, a Neanderthal and a human being and you had them fight, the modern human being would lose every time. They would lose. We would lose. And so, but if you took 100 Neanderthals, and you took a hundred modern human beings and had a hundred of them fight, the modern human being would win because we communicate better, because we have better language. And that's what writing is. And so we, we look at writing so often as a form of advocacy, as a form of, well, it doesn't really matter what somebody thinks or says or how they think it or say it. I'll say in a business point of view, uh, it's the most important thing you do in business. You're not a wealth manager. You're not. Uh, you're not any of those things. You you are the credibility of being able to speak about those things in public. You're the credibility of being able to convince a client that you're good at that thing. And and we miss that in culture. And so there are tons of great ideas and brilliant businesses that can't get off the ground in terms of their marketing. Can't get off the grounds in terms of their team management. That just we haven't taught people writing well. And now it comes back to what we were just talking about right now in terms of information comes from somewhere. And so the next question is, so why, right? This is, which is why I think you called me a, a, a questioner. But, but it's so, it's, questioning is so apparent. It's so necessary in the writing process because whenever you're writing something, you're presenting a piece of information that is out of context. And then the next question is, well, why are you presenting it this way? Or why, or why, or, or where does this information, can I trust this information? Is this credible? And so the question that immediately becomes why, why and where are you getting this information from? So to come back to you, you had mentioned having maybe some regret that you that you didn't participate in some of the things that some of your other friends were doing in college. So I'm interested in why, why do you have that regard? I just think I like looking back on it now, I think most of it comes down to, you know, I have a lot of friends that are very deep connections. I've always focused on having deep connections first. I don't really have a lot of shallow friends, which I've always been like really, really much down and, and, and okay with. 
But, you know, sometimes you see, especially on social media as it gets uh, more prominent, you see groups of like 30 friends getting together. And I'm like, I never had really 30 groups of friends coming together. That's never been my thing because I've always valued like very specific relationships or very specific friendships. My groups are just five or six people. I don't have a lot of those friends where we get together and there's these wild stories of things that we did in university because I was never a part of those wild things. And so I think not a, a lot of me isn't really you know, craving that I did that. It's just more the the social credit that you get sometimes when you experience those things, that that social hierarchy. And sometimes I just feel left out of that. But I know that I'm very much loved by my friends, but there's this like just general self-doubt that you that you sometimes can have or just those lives that can be led in college. But it's funny, I just read this book called uh, Hookup Culture or American Hookup, uh, Hookup Culture on, on American campuses. And it's just talking about how, you know, it's just this idea that everyone wants to be part of that culture. So they all build it, but no one actually wants to be part of that culture. It's just that that culture is built by this ideology that it has to exist. So everyone puts pressure on themselves for it to exist. But then really in isolation, they don't want to be part of it. But that's just the social expectation of them. And I really love that book. I think that it's one of my favorite books I've ever read. Just so much human psychology in that book that I've just, especially from from people in university that I've, that I've never really been able to collect from other books before. Yeah. Well, if you, if you don't mind me being an old man, and I, and I suspect I'm twice your age, there's a discomfort often in being who we are because we've never been somebody else. And so then we, and then we say, you know, if I, if I was so-and-so, then I would live like this, or I would have lived like, or I would have had those experiences or whatever. And what we begin to realize is that we understand ourselves pretty well at all times. And my sense from you, for whatever it's worth to you, is that you understand yourself pretty well probably rightfully we're filtering through information saying well, I could be doing the hookup thing and I could be partying with you know 30 or 60 or, or 200 of my closest friends but it's not my preference and I really would prefer to have you know one girlfriend or three girlfriends or you know throughout a couple of years or a couple of close friends where we have better conversations you are after all somebody who has a podcast so so depth matters to you. The problem is when we get, you know, particularly at your age and younger, we think, well, but other people are judging. Other people are judging the fact that I prefer to be, you know, have three deep friends than, than 50 partying friends. Uh, and they might be, right? So fuck them. Because, and they might be, right? And, and, but but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't actually reflect on you. And as you get older, you realize that. But when you're younger, you don't really know. It. But, but as you get older, you start to say, you know, the benefits of you being the person that you are are good for you, right? Like you enjoy the, the life and the choices that you have made, unless that's not true, and, and, then, and then make different ones. But, but, but there is this social thing of, of, well, you know, maybe I should have had, you know, 15 girlfriends in my freshman year, and maybe I should have you know, parted with, with 200 people in my, in my freshman year, because that would look cool or something on, on social media. But, but the, but the other really cool thing in life is just saying, you know what, that's okay. It's not me. Like I'm comfortable. With that not being me. Yeah. I think when you just see a lot of mentality, especially if you're on LinkedIn a lot, 
it's a lot of this hustle and grind mentality where it's just, you know, if you are, I see, I see it a lot in terms of these like young thought leaders. It's a lot of fuck these people that are going out and partying so much. Like I'm trying to build, build, build my business. And it's like, cool. You just have a different lifestyle than the other people. No reason to attack their lifestyle. And then you see the people that are partying kind of being like, oh, these people are uh, that are trying to build their businesses and whatnot, like screw them because they think they're better than me. And there's just a lot of this mentality and, and pressure that it seems like people are putting on themselves to be busy at all times and not just rest. You know, I, I was talking about it on another episode about how when you have a podcast, it's very easy to want to grow it to the next biggest thing in the world. Like, obviously, I want to be able to get some of the top men in the world on this podcast, but I'm also not going to, you know, try to kill myself trying to get there at the same time. I'm trying to enjoy this process. And I know if I put too much work into it, I'll, I'll lose part of that. I'll, I'll lose the part of me that really loves talking with people because that's really what I'm trying to do here, you know. I've done interviews with pretty cool, pretty, uh, you know, I'd say like well-known people. And those sometimes are my least favorite episodes because it's almost like they're media trained. There's there's less depth that they give you because of that. They're less real, they're less authentic. And so, you know, I've, I've learned that sometimes the best episodes may be with that nobody from LinkedIn that no one's ever heard of, but they have a really incredible story and they're willing to go deep into it rather than someone whose story has been known by so many people for so long. Therefore, the depths that you can really go with that isn't very far. It's going to be hard for that like to stick out as, as a key episode that you've ever done because they've shared so much. And so I think for me, it's a lot more of, I don't want to put that pressure on myself to do nothing, but I don't want to put, my, put pressure on myself to do everything when it comes to this podcast. And like there, there was, there's that self-doubt that then bleeds into that, you know, from go, go, go people on LinkedIn and people like Gary, Gary V. Not that I speak with them directly, but it's like, if you're not putting everything into it, you don't care. And I'm like, well, I, I do care, but I also want to have this life outside of that as well. Well, I think it's an interesting point, Luke, that first of all, as one of the nobodies on LinkedIn, I appreciate that you're willing to speak to nobodies as well. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but um, I think the question isn't what, it's, it's a little bit what somebody wants. Like, I think that's an interesting question. But it's also why do they want it? And I know Simon Sinek talks about that a lot. So, and so my sense from you is that you genuinely enjoy the conversation and think that you can have deep conversations and, and thoughtful conversations and learn something. That's one way to grow an audience. And in fact, it's probably the most meaningful and useful way to grow an audience, but it's also going to be a slower build than you know, putting out videos of, you know, the rocks body with your face on them saying, do you like my workout routine today or something, right? So, so you know, funnier things or quippier things or more cliche things are going to get more engagement, but it's probably not going to bring you the people or the conversations that you want. And that, and that's, it's a little bit like the, the popular unpopular kid thing we were talking about. When we participate in an action, why are we participating in that action? And are we comfortable with it? And then it's like, well, but if you do it that way, it's going to take a long time. And I, and I go through this with my business. And maybe because it's your podcast, people who will listen to this will go through this too or are going through. But I literally go through this with my business that I build 
credibility in my business with good language. That's how I have done it. And so everything that is on LinkedIn that I have presented is well-written. It's well thought through. It tends to be deep. It tends to, okay, well, what are the benefits of that? Well, it, certain clients, I'm under NDAs, called me and signed me before I met them. Like literally sit in the room at major companies that you would have heard from and say, we've seen your videos and we've seen your stuff and we don't know who else we would go to for this. So what are your prices? That happens on, on because of that. Okay. The other thing to do is what other people do which is build funnels and build pain points and hire copywriters, not thought leadership, and don't go deep. Do they make more money than I do? Probably, because they're kicking lower end fruit. And I, I think that's probably an important thing for you to know. Like you could do it differently, but you'd be kicking lower end fruit. You'd, you'd not be as deep and you wouldn't be presenting the type of material that you're presenting. And the great thing about the internet is it's entirely democratic that the people who listen to you are the people who want to they don't have to and so and so they choose you right they choose you and and there's enough people in the internet for everybody right like you you will you will attract you will get magnet from the people you need to in order to grow it to the size it needs to be in order for you to do it and then we have like the popular unpopular kid thing where people say but you really should be doing it like this and it's like well maybe luke shouldn't be doing it that way maybe maybe presenting it in exactly the way you're presenting it is the way that you're getting the audience you need mm -hmm. no i think that's definitely true for myself it seems the most authentic to me what i'm doing right now it seems the most purposeful to me even though it has been a slow rise or you know it can be discouraging because people ask you like, oh, how many listens do you get? It's like, well, I get like 25, 30, 40, 50 an episode. Like it's not that much. And immediately there's like a disappointment in their voice because it's almost like they expect that you're getting thousands of views or listens. And I'm like, I don't even know. I don't even think I know a thousand people. Like I, I have maybe a thousand followers on, on Instagram, but do I really interact with any of those people at, or all those people all the time? No, I don't. So... I think when it comes to that, I feel very comfortable with the trajectory I'm on. I be, feel very comfortable with where I'm at. But I know that, you know, I, I kind of am very interested in, in the process that you take a lot of your clients through because I find it very interesting how it's think deeply first and then the writing will come after. Like it's think deeply and then I'm forgetting the second half right now. Think deeply, write clearly. Yeah, write clearly. So, so the writing aspect comes second. It's all about thinking. So, I'm really, I'm really interested in the process that you take people down when it comes to thinking and how you get them to think. Because I was just blown away by how you're able to get me to open up on our first phone call and and talk about those things and and really drive me deeper into those questions. So, kind of take me through the thought process of that. Okay. So, well, as we spoke about, information comes from somewhere. And so when somebody says, you know, I believe something or, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. This, this totally, I won't use the, the company's name. There's a, a company that has hired me and my job is to help them say what they do better. This is a company that makes a lot of money, upwards of a hundred million dollars a year. And they're having difficulty saying what they do. And so Part of it is what we're talking about. Part of it is whenever we make some kind of abstract statement 
and any abstract any any statement out of context is abstract. And so whenever we make any abstract statements underlined by concrete data that is not seen. So for instance, if I were to use the say the word desk, you have a reasonably, you know, I'm reasonably comfortable that you know what a desk is. But we're we're just sitting here on Zoom. You don't see my desk. I don't see your desk. We just have the same concrete thing that is underlying that word desk in our mind. Okay, now try the word love. Now try the word family. Now try success. Now try fear, right? And so all of a sudden we're gonna have very different things underlying all of those other words. It's not like desk, but desk is also abstract. It's just more, we just understand the audience more. And so whenever somebody presents information, and that's what writing is, it's presenting information. The real question isn't what are they presenting on the surface level? It's what's the concrete thing that underlies it? So when you say, I believe that we all can be more successful, the next question is, what and how? Like, what does that mean? And you would be fascinated, I think, Luke, to find out that people really find out that they can sell the idea that I can make you successful and have no freaking clue what it means. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. and so, and so it's like, and it's like, well, do you really have mastery of the subject if you can't explain what it means or where it comes from or what? And so, and so the vast majority, there, there's a whole thing in, in business right now, but it's the same thing in, in, in anything else. Data does not have inherent value. In it. If, if, we, if, we, if you simply said to somebody, today is, you know, March 19th, and no one had a sense of date or time or year or anything, that's a useless piece of information to that person. It's just a piece of data. It's only a useful piece of data if it's in context to other pieces of information. There's 365 days in a year. March tends to be the movement between spring and uh, winter, right? So only when you have other information does the fact that it's March 19th make any real sense to us. And so in terms of writing well and why we approach writing the way we do, because the information itself doesn't give enough information. We always have to be asking, where does the information come from? And then how much information does our audience need to know to deem that we are credible when we present it? Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to finding out about your own life, you know, if it comes beyond a, a company, but if I'm trying to find out for me who I am, like, what is a process that you take clients down for their own self-reflection, for their own self-understanding? Because I feel like a lot of young people and even older people, I, I don't think this is a is an age thing so much, but we they really struggle with self-reflection. And that's, I don't really feel like that's something that I have struggled with. I feel like I've been able to guide myself down paths my entire life where I understand where pain or or some of my shame or anger is coming from. I'm, I'm pretty aware of those things. But why, why do you think so many people struggle with it? And then two, how do you guide people down that self-analyzation process? Sure. So it's a good question. If you go very Buddhist on this, there's a reason that we identify the way we identify, right? So if you were to say, Brian, who are, I would say, oh, I'm a business person, or I'm a writer, or I'm a writer, I would, I would start giving you abstract terms that define me. So there's, there's a reason that we do that. And that reason is usually our ego. 
right? So it's usually, I want someone to see me like a business person. I want someone to see me like, because I didn't say I'm a husband, right? Although I am. I didn't say I'm a New York Mets fan, although I am. And so immediately I'm like, well, what are the things that I want you to see me as? What are the things that, okay. So that's the first question of identity. That when we say, you know, who, who are you? How are you identifying? And then the next question, why are we identifying like that? Because in, in reality, there's no self. Like there, there is no, we, we are human beings in relationship to other things. There's no verb. I forget the, I forget the, the language that the Buddha was in. But, there, but there's no verb in that language. There's no verb to be. So I, so I couldn't say in that language, I am Brian. I, I would have to say right now, I am Brianing, right? I'm a verb. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> and so, 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 so this thing that I am is in relationship to other things. It's in relationship to business and it's in relationship to my wife and it's in relationship to you and it's in relationship to the podcast. It's in relationship with an audience and it's in relationship to LinkedIn and it's in relationship to, but the minute we start to identify with it, it's like, well, why did you choose that one? Like, why did you choose that identity versus another one versus another one versus another one? Like, if you go really, really far with it, there is no free identity. That the, the identity is the relationship and not the thing. And so that would be my first question to people who w- would be interested in it. Why are we identifying the way we, and we all do it, there's nothing wrong with it, but why are we identifying the way we do it? And then I think the next, you know, in, meant in a loving way question, what's the ego need? to do that that way what why are we why do our egos need to choose that one or that one or that one and are we comfortable with that is that saying the right stuff about that and now all of a sudden you're in a conversation with yourself can be which can be very meaningful Mm -hmm. and do you think that that ego piece is nurtured or are you born with that like in terms of if i'm if i'm like um would i be predisposed to a certain type of ego need versus someone else would like if i'm ego need for for money or for for love or something. What is that addiction? What is that craving? Where does that come from? I think it's unfortunately and fortunately, right? God bless us all. Fortunately or unfortunately, the same as the popular, not popular conversation. And I, I say this to you as a as a guy who's probably never been on the popular side of that. And my whole life. Uh, eventually you begin to realize that. You know, if, if you end up with the 50 people you're supposed to end up with, it's better than ending up with the 50 you thought were judging you. But that takes a little while. But I think because we are in relationship to people, we immediately want to say, how do you see me? How do you like, do, do, how, do you see me as a business person? Do you see me as wealthy? Do you see me as, right? And then Madison Avenue completely understands this, right? Like they get it. And so they're like, if you want to be wealthy, drive a Porsche, right? And we go, great. Now I know if I have a Porsche, everyone's going to see, <laughs> everyone's going to, right? Yeah. So, so they figured that out, right? They figured that out. But I, I do think there is, uh, I don't think it is innate to have ego. I think that is learned, but it's learned probably very, very early. It's, it's impossible to spill milk when you're a kid and be told, you're always so clumsy. You're always so blah, 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 and not at some point develop an ego. You just have to in relationship to that. You've been told it's your fault. And so therefore, there will be an I reaction to that. 
And that's going to be the same eye reaction that you have when somebody says you're a bad speller or you're bad at writing or you're whatever, you eat too much pizza or whatever it is. And, and it's going to be the same eye reaction to that. Is it innate? Like, do we have to have that feeling? No. But does utter, does everybody probably have it? Yes. I think probably most people do. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we first connected, we had a pretty interesting conversation about addiction and, you know, where does that come from? What happens with different people? And it's always a question of control and how that idea is almost like we, that addiction is in relation to something else. So, you know, I talked about how I think I have, I I forget if I talked about this specifically, but in high school, I was addicted to video games because I felt left out or or isolated. And, And so I didn't really think, I never really thought that video games were actually addictive, but they were addictive because they filled a hole in relation to another aspect of my life. It's the same with people and marijuana. I, I truly don't think marijuana is a very addictive substance because science shows that it's not. But I think people can get addicted to it because you feel anxious in situations or you feel lonely at times. So you use it to fill a hole. So I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying there in terms of in relation to something else, I am this way. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, th- I th- and, and And we should... You know, we use addiction in such a negative way, right? But but a lot of that negative addiction, use of the word addiction is culture. So, for instance, if we said in the United States at any rate, well, you're addicted to money, somebody would say, thank you. Right. They would say, you know, like, like, like that's an addiction we're okay with. Or if your addiction to physical health, you know, thank you. Right. Then that's an addiction I'm okay with. But but you're right that it is a relationship to something else. Like there's a reason you need the money. There's a reason you need the physical health. There's also a reason you need the video. There's also a reason you need the marijuana or the beer or anything else. And so it's the relationship that is it's, it's the relationship that is causing that. And in every case, it's a essentially flawed relationship. Right. If you're addicted to it, it's a flawed relationship. If you're controlling it, then it's not a flawed relationship. So if you're controlling it the same way somebody I might say, well, you know, do you want um, do, do you want, uh, you know, another bottle of water? You, you might say, well, I would or I wouldn't. But no one's going to say, man, you're addicted to water. Right. So so if you're in control of it, you can make a mindful decision about it. Then that whatever the hole in that relationship is, is not controlling you. Mm-hmm. but if you are addicted to physical health or anything if you're addicted to anything it's it's compensating for a hole of control somewhere mm-hmm. how do you identify the hole that you're trying to fill and how do you make the steps to overcome it because you know i i would say i lack willpower in a lot of my addictions sometimes whether it's sugar whether it's pornography you know i know that the decision right now is bad but I've never really been able to identify where it comes from in some key aspects of my life. Uh, and if I do, I can't overcome it. So like, what are your, what are your best practices? What advice do you have? How do you guide people down that? What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I should be, I should be careful in any, you know, podcast that's publicly released, right? Because I don't want to necessarily give advice that is counter to anybody, but my opinion for whatever it's worth I think my client Desmond has this one right, which is whatever we're doing now is going to be who we are in the future. And there's nothing wrong with it. 
like I'll, like I'll, I'll simply just say that there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with eating too much sugar. There's nothing wrong with smoking marijuana or drinking too much beer or any of those things. If that's how you've decided to manage your life, if that's a managed decision, but it will be your future, right? Like that's like that because, because the difference between who you are now and, and who you are in the future is how you behave now. And, 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 and I think we miss that. Like we miss that as a society very much. We miss that that our lives are never going to be lived in in any place except right now. That you will only ever make the decision about you're going to watch pornography or not watch pornography or eat sugar or not eat sugar or drink beer or not drink beer right now. It will never not be a now decision. And I think that we often say well, you know, I, I'll, I'll stop looking at pornography tomorrow or eating too much sugar tomorrow or, or drinking too much beer as if I'm going to magically, when the now comes tomorrow, have more willpower or more. So I recognize that time is important, but I don't recognize that the now is important. But of course, the difference between the future time and the now is just passing of minutes and then it's now again. And, so, and now we have to make that. And so I think Desmond's right on this. I think he's right that the future is going to look like, and, and are we comfortable with that? Are, we, are, we, are, you, are, are you really comfortable with being addicted to pornography ongoing, right? Or is it something you want to get in control of? Are you comfortable being addicted to anything that people are addicted to ongoing? Or is it something we want to get in control of? And the only time that we will ever have to be in control of it is the decision right now. And, and that's hard because that puts us, that puts us in this position of I this this is the time that I decide whether or not to eat pizza. I don't get to not make that decision now. This is the time to make that decision. Yeah. I I think that is very important. And it's, it's very much almost in the same idea of the the logic of where I what I did to get where I am now isn't what I got, isn't what's going to get me further. You always have to be improving. You always have to be making decisions that you think are best for yourself now or the future. And you know, I also wanted to talk about how you look at the future. Like I remember you asking me, "Where do I see see myself in five years?" and what that was important in discovering the podcast and and writing down and and figuring out very clearly where I want to take this thing, which is almost counterintuitive to to recognizing the now, but also very important at recognizing the now. So in terms of, I I really like what you said there, recognizing the, we recognize the importance of time, but not the, the importance of now, but then you kind of wanted to, to guide me down a path of, of looking into the future. And where does that kind of come from? Where, where does that thought process where do those two things kind of intermingle and, and come to a clear conclusion? Well, I think so. I don't. I hate the term "fake it till you make it." I hate that term because it because it implies falseness. So so I'll say it a different way. If, for instance, you intend to have thirty thousand people a week listening to your podcast and be sponsored and make money from it and et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm making that up. I don't know what it is, but, but let's say that's the case. I do know that you're capable of it and that 
The only difference between having it and not having it are the decisions you make in the now between now and the time that you have it. And so I would throw that in and say, I hate fake it till you make it, but, but I appreciate the sentiment because in essence it says, I have to behave like the person I intend to be in order to be that person. And I think that's true. I don't think people who don't run businesses that could make a million dollars a year make businesses that could make a million dollars a year. I think you have to run your business as if it could make a million dollars a year when you're making 50,000. When you get in the room with somebody, they know whether or not you're capable of what they're asking you to do. And when you get in the room with yourself, you know whether or not you're capable of what you're asking yourself to do. And so I think I think that's sort of, I hate fake it till you make it, but, but I appreciate the sentiment. What our businesses look like in five years, who, who we are in five years, those things are all essentially decided by the, by the decisions that we make now and reiterate those habits now. Yeah. And I also hate the idea of fake it. The, I understand the, the concept of fake it till you make it, but I also hate people that portray it too much. And and to me, it's more of those people that aren't, not the ones that aren't building it, like they're, they're on the way to build a business, but more the people that go out, buy expensive clothing and live an image of their life that they think people want to see of them, but they really can't afford. That's more what it is. To me, if like, if you're running a podcast or a business and you're, again, what you're thinking is like, I want to run this like it's a million dollar company. I want to run it like this to get the respect you deserve, but also just to think for the future. I think that makes a lot of sense. But if you're literally living in a world where it's like you're snapping photos or you're briefly shallowly looking at your image because that's what you think people want rather than what you want. That's where I don't like it. If I'm like, I want to run this like I have 30,000 listeners and I want to make it pretty professional, then I want to make sure that it's a professional podcast because that's what I want. I don't care what other people think. Like I recently got an, an editor to help me and um, help me out of my podcast and he was talking a lot about um, obviously the best practices for audio and cutting it together and editing it. And I'm like, man, like I understand where you're coming from as an, as an audio creator, you want it to be really good as an audio editor. You want it to be perfect to me. That's not my brand. My brand is literally called imperfect. And I'm talking about these scenarios and I obviously want my, my audio to be very listenable, but if I have inspiration to record something i'm not going to take through a process of making it perfect i'm just going to post it because that's what i that's what i want my image is authentic my image is that it's not a this might be like a bit of an over analysis but it's not to the perfection that maybe other people want of me or the expectation of they that they have for a podcast it's my my podcast is content first audio quality comes second but at the same time i want my audio quality to be high if that makes any sense i don't know <laughs> yeah, it does no i think it makes good sense yeah. But I think that's like most of the questions that I have. I, is there anything else that you kind of want to talk about before I go into the last three questions? Any other things that you want to ask me? Uh, any other topics you want to delve into a, a bit more? I think I'm good. I think we're good. We're, this this has been really interesting so far. Perfect. Then I'll go into my, uh, my last three questions that I typically ask my guests, and then I'll have you kind of talk about what you're doing, where people can find you. But uh, question one, 
What is one piece of advice that your father or another important male figure gave you that you live by every day? Unfortunately, and I, and I mean this with the most love here, I have recreated my life so dramatically since I was a kid and even year to year. I, I think the biggest piece of advice that I have learned in my life came from books. And I think we've touched on clients, came from thinking, I mean, came from standing in the shower. And I think we've touched on some of the biggest ones, but every decision is made in the now. That's a big one. And if you want to know what your future looks like, what are you doing in the now? That's probably the other big one. Those might be the two biggest pieces of advice that, that, I've, that I've heard. From a writing standpoint, I would say it's one of my own mantras, which is writing is the end product of thinking. And I think that's the, that's the thing that we often miss when we write. And that's when we write anything. That's when we write love letters through, you know, a technical reports through marketing, that writing is the end product of thinking. And so I think about that quite a lot too. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, as a sidetrack, what is your favorite book of, uh, of all time? The Human Stain by Philip Roth. And, um, the uh, if your listeners are interested, right now on HBO, starting I think last week, they're turning a, a Philip Roth novel. He he did I think four great novels. He did American Pastoral, followed by The Human Stain, followed by Elegy, which was turned into a movie years ago. Well, I think of a movie at this point. Ben Kingsley was in was in that uh, movie. And uh, right now on HBO, they've got, they're doing the movie of the fourth great novel, which is uh, The Plot Against America. And that's being done on HBO right now. And we saw the first episode of that, and that's really good too. But, but The Human Stain by Philip Roth. Perfect. I'm making a running book list for myself so I can try to invest in, in some since, you know, I have nothing else to do during the self-isolation for the most part. Um, question two, what is one piece of advice that you wish your father or an important male figure gave you? Always take the ten percent dividend, and maybe maybe this is useful to people your age and people who listen to your podcast. Learning, to if if you don't mind me extrapolating for a second, the school system has does not discuss two probably the two most significant things that will actually make a difference in your life. The first one is how to write or communicate well. They don't actually discuss that, right? Which is probably the prime driver of income of business of everything else is is that but they don't discuss it and number two is they don't discuss financial management and what you begin to realize when you get to be a little bit older is that an asset that grows that throws off a 10 percent dividend is an amazing thing and they never speak about that uh, and so, and so if you learn that too late in life, you can't take advantage of it. But if you learn it early enough in life, your asset grows as does the ability to pay for more assets because it's throwing off a 10% dividend and that's rental properties through stocks, through businesses that you own through everything else. So I hope that that changes somebody's life. I think the numbers are something like if you save $100 a month from your age to 65, 
it's like $1.2 million. I mean, it's, it's ridiculously easy if you start early, particularly when I got, listen, on the day that we're, on the day that we're recording this, I don't know how long it takes you to get it out, but buy stocks tomorrow, right? Like <laughs> if I'm your age, I am buying stocks tomorrow. This is a golden opportunity to, to start doing that. Well, it's funny because my dad is a financial advisor. And so I've told him it's horrible to like be like, yeah, that was the perfect time to buy stocks because of the whole situation. But at the same time, it's now is the perfect time to buy stocks because I don't, I've never had them in the first place. And so I'd be buying them super low, uh, lower than they've been since 2008, I think. And so it's just like the perfect time to use that. However, it's the worst of circumstances that you could possibly imagine. But it's like, yeah, I definitely, I told my dad, I'm like, hey, I need to start investing my money. And I'm living at home for sure with no cost basically over the next probably minimum month and a half. And now OSAP uh, or sorry, the student loans have been, there's no interest on those for the next six months. So I'm in a good place right now financially for myself, but unfortunately for a lot of people, their finances are probably causing them the most stress in the world right now. But yeah, I definitely have talked to my dad about that and I want to get smarter about finance. That's a lot of what the older guests I have say, because a lot of my younger guests are just like, I don't know, just love yourself. Like that's typically the the advice they get. But a lot of like the people that uh, are like yourself. It's a lot easier to love yourself in a beach house. Yes, <laughs> that, that's for sure. I'll, I can tell you that much. I wish I was on a beach house right now, isolated <laughs> instead of where I am. So. The last question I always ask people is what, what is one piece of advice that you want to pass down to future generations or your kids? I think, I think we discussed it already, but if I had to, probably the biggest takeaway of, of, of my life so far is that identity is a ruse. It, it's an ego ruse and it's okay. There's nothing wrong with, you know, saying I'm a writer or saying I'm a business person or any of those things, but to comment on anything is a reflection of the commenter. And that's the, that's the truth. If you, so if you're internally saying I'm a business person or I'm a, you know, but it's also true if you're saying, look, I'm fat or look, I'm, I'm a jerk or I'm a, it's like, why are you identifying with that? Like, that's an interesting, why would we identify that way? Right. And so, and it's also true when somebody else says it, right. If your parents call you unsuccessful or parents say, friends say that or whatever, it's not you, right. Like, like they're trying to make it your identity, but, but identity is a ruse. And so, and and I think, I think that learning that and learning how we process the language of how we talk about who we are is probably the thing that has given me the most freedom in my life. And so I would pass on to think of ourselves in relationships to things, but not being things. And that would probably change a lot of people. That's beautiful. And then finally, I want to close it off with asking, you know, what is it that you want to share to my audience? What do you have going on in your life and where can people find you? I appreciate it. My company is Think Deeply, Write Clearly. On Monday nights, I'm going to just as a, hey, we're all isolated and we still want to be together in community. On Monday nights, I'm going to be holding a free writing class where we do the types of discussions that you and I are having here tonight. We're going to take some stimulus from the world. We'll take a, an article from the New York Times or something and uh, and discuss why it's presented that way and what's working in it and not, what's not working in it. If, if it's of interest to you to, to look at probably a way to improve your own writing, and it's also probably going to improve our own reading. 
if that's of interest, then that'll be Monday nights. And if they want to, you know, reach out to me, they can do so on my on my website, which is thinkdeeplyrightclearly.com. Mm-hmm. And is that every Monday night moving forward? That's every Monday night for the foreseeable future, so long as we're all self-isolating for sure. And and maybe going forward after that. It's important to me. I look at I look at language as very community oriented. It's I guess it's the thing that I can do, right? Other other people can do other things, or this is the thing that I can do uh, to, to bring some people together. Perfect. Well, Brian, I really enjoyed you coming on. Um, I always find our conversations very much deeper obviously than uh than some others just because of the way that you facilitate conversation i think you're a master of it i think you have a a gift that you've probably developed it's probably a bit mix of natural but also just the years of experience that you have and i really wanted to thank you for being a guest and i look forward to people hearing this episode but uh that's it for now and i look forward to everyone tuning in next week so thank you for listening and cheers Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of Imperfect. Uh, I really love this episode, and I hope you did too. If you liked it, please leave a review on iTunes. It does a lot for me. Or connect with me on LinkedIn at Luke West, or follow my Instagram, The Imperfect Pod. There you'll see a lot of bite-sized content, as well as some more information about all my guests and uh, just some snippets from the, the week's episode. You also get updates about when the episodes will be going live, and so I really value if you listen there. And thank you again to Matthew McClelland for editing this week's episode, and uh, I look forward to connecting with you all next week.